Church of Christ presents Grounded in Gratitude, the reflection by the Rev. Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, November 26, 2023. Well, happy Christ the King Sunday, or more gender-inclusively, happy Reign of Christ Sunday. You are forgiven if, like me, Reign of Christ Sunday is not something you think of from one year to the next, and perhaps you've never even heard of it before. There is a reason for that. Reign of Christ Sunday is a modern invention. It was created in the 1920s to address rising totalitarian ideologies in the wake of World War I. It was a way to talk back to fascism, communism, and capitalism, all those human systems that claim ultimate authority over human life. The creators of this day of worship and liturgical notice wanted to reclaim Jesus as the head of the church and the heart of the whole world. Reign of Christ Sunday was created to respond to particular ideological threats. But the long history of the collusion between church and empire proves that the language of kingship and authority had long been misused in all kinds of nefarious ways. Our own American history, though we broke with the idea of kingship, is rife with examples of confusing Christ as the heart of the world with Christians as the rightful holders of power and authority. The usurpation has led to conquest and colonialism under the banner of manifest destiny, the corrupt idea that God ordained the destruction of indigenous people so that Christ's people could reign. Right now we see this perversion in the rise of Christian nationalism right now in America today. With its end goal of making a Christian theocracy, something which can be made to sound innocent and welcoming and kind. It might even sound like it's a way of honoring Christ but inevitably it ends up with consolidating power in the hands of a few who grant themselves authority to interpret the meaning of scripture and tradition, impose that interpretation on everyone, and restrict the freedom of all and any who disagree with them. It is a dangerous road that part of our nation is toying with right now and labeling it Christian. Jesus's kind of kingship cannot be separated from the cross and the manger and the gracious ministry in between. When Jesus at the end of his life said, this, my kingdom is not of this world, he did not mean that his reign is restricted to some other transcendent realm and he's giving all power to the humans here behind to do as they will in his name. He meant, I think, that he has another kind of reign in mind, a reign unlike the kingdoms of this world, not the kingdoms of this world, but with his name on top. Unlike the kingdoms of this world with their greed and oppression and hoarding of power and property for some at the expense of many, 
He said to the people, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. For I was hungry. Lord, when did we see you hungry and give you food and drink? When did we welcome you, give you clothing, take care of you when you were sick, or visit you in prison? There they are, this huge apocalyptic scene, people of all nations gathered, the Son of Man accompanied by angels sitting on a throne, surrounded in glory. It's an apocalyptic vision, trying to understand what is going to happen to people as this world moves along. In this vision, Jesus has separated the people out, calling some people blessed and telling them that they have inherited the kingdom of God. But when he said it, he's neither looking up nor directing them to lift their eyes up. You're blessed, he said, not because of the way you prayed, not because of the way you worshiped or offered sacrifice. You will inherit a kingdom not because you conquered and subdued and held power in my name. You will inherit a kingdom because of the way you tended to me in my hunger, thirst, loneliness, and vulnerability. They have no idea what he's talking about. When did we, they say. They don't remember having fed or clothed or welcomed or visited Jesus, but he does. He remembers every time they cared for the least person, just as if it were being done to him. And he remembers every time those separated in the other direction didn't care for the hungry, the thirsty, or the lonely least. After all the stories piled up in this last section of Jesus's teachings in the Gospel of Matthew, which we have read together over the last few weeks, the vision of justice comes down to just this. How did you treat the most vulnerable in your midst? Not how did you do it once? How did you do it habitually? How did you do it when no one was looking or keeping score or noticing? It's not about what theological proposition you held. It's not about how strictly you upheld cultural norms of morality and right behavior. It's not about how often you went to the temple or how scrupulous your observance of the law has been. And it's certainly not about how effectively you force your ideas of righteousness on other people. It's not about using Christ's name to consolidate power and rule for the Jesus side. It is just this. Did you take care of me in the lives of the vulnerable? Did you pay attention? Did you even see the hungry and thirsty, the refugee and the sick? Were you even aware that there were people sitting in prison? Have you any idea what prison is like? Do you know what happens to people there? The loneliness that can descend on a person there. When you do see, when you do respond, you are blessed. You already belong to the kingdom. Something to remember is that those blessed ones did not do the feeding, clothing, and visiting as part of a transaction. Generous behavior for approval for God. You don't trade like that. They simply 
lived it, caught up in the goodness and the joy of it. This familiar text about the sheep and the goats and the giving to the last and the least is rightly treasured as a beautiful reminder of the whole of the gospel. But if we are honest, if you are anything like me, it should also catch us up short. It isn't easy either to feed or clothe or visit even part of all of the people who are in need. It isn't easy to demand that our community and our government respond. It isn't even easy to respond just to the vulnerable directly in our own personal path every day. I'm reminded of this every single time I make the drive from my home on the west side to our church building here in Milwaukee. Every single time I pass someone who is in need and I almost never stop my car, partly because traffic's moving fast and it would be unsafe. But that's my out, isn't it? That's my, my excuse. And sometimes, I confess, I decide, to sh I decide to shop at Winco instead of Trader Joe's. Yes, Winco is cheaper. But at Trader Joe's, I know that there will always be people standing at the light on the east side of the parking lot. Winko doesn't have that. I, had, I know that I have even found myself, if I do go to Trader Joe's, semi-consciously choosing the northern exit of the parking lot just to avoid those people I know will be standing at the east exit. Maybe because I have been afraid that I would see the face of Christ if I looked into their face and I would know that the dollar or two I gave them was insufficient to their need. Maybe because I suspected that I would not see the face of Christ, that in my hurry and in my impatience, I would turn my face away altogether. Or maybe I would look with a hardened heart, with judging eyes, listening to the cultural stories about how people came to be in such a place, or how the money would just go to alcohol anyway. I shouldn't bother. Easy to just go the long way around to the northern exit and avoid the whole internal dialogue. But this is the path of the blessed who belong to God's realm, to learn to love the stranger, to feed the one who is, in right, who is right in front of you, to offer clothing to those who are cold and vulnerable. The path of blessing is also to work and to vote for systems that don't leave so many people hungry. And to do all of that because you see other human beings as human beings to serve, not problems to avoid. When we, when I, waste time judging other people, we don't have time to love them. Our minds and hearts are too filled up with a story we've created about them. I think what Jesus is telling us is that there is no distinction between us and them. We are all giver and receiver at different times in our lives, at different stages, and in different locations. We are not ontologically different. Our being is not different from those who right now in this moment have need, even though we may want to protect ourselves from that idea, because it's frightening to think that we and the vulnerable are the same. 
Jesus calls us to see those who need and to respond with the acts that will make their continued living, their thriving, possible. He invites us to see and to suffer with them, to come close and suffer too, along with them, to come close and also to see not only their suffering, but their beauty, their humanity, their creativity, and their wholeness, despite and beside and within their vulnerability. It is hard to hold on to this vision of belonging to each other, hard to respond to this call to compassion. It's easy to feel ourselves insufficient to the endless need, especially when the world feels fragile and violence is so close. It is easy in these days that feel apocalyptic to be tempted to despair and inaction. Stephen Charleston, an Episcopal bishop and Choctaw elder, has written a beautiful new book. It's titled, We Survived the End of the World, Lessons from Native America on Apocalypse and Hope. He raises up for us the fact that we have models in our own American history, not our colonial history, our whole American history, of how to not only get through an apocalypse, but to thrive through it and to actively reshape its impact and trajectory. Because the indigenous people on this land have survived destruction. They have survived to thrive again. We can look to their experience with respect and humility, and we too can reshape and change the trajectory of our apocalyptic times. We can do this by thinking relationally, both in terms of other human beings and also the whole creation with which we are in relationship. We can move from our vaunted American individualism to community thinking, from me and mine and my thriving to us and our thriving. And we can keep pushing and expanding the limits of who counts as us. We can do this reshaping of the trajectory by standing on the principle, not on the principle of competition, but on the sacred ground of diversity and inclusion. We can actively do this, reshape the trajectory of apocalypse. We can do this by actively seeking truth and reconciliation about our past in America. Bishop um, Stevenson writes, our vision must be broad enough to include those with whom we have always struggled. No one goes to the promised land unless we all go together. And finally, Bishop Charlson's vision includes the wisdom that we all belong to the same origin and we are all going to the same place of shared destiny. We are, he wrote recently, in a time of deep transformation and deep change. We did not ask for this to be the case. He didn't say, but I will add, there's a reason it's a curse to be wished that you live in interesting times. We did not fully anticipate this, but it is our reality and it is our challenge. It's given to us and the spirit has confidence in us to move history in the direction of hope. We are called to create a future 
we are equal to the task with the help of heaven and the kinship of all living things. As Thanksgiving recedes quickly in our busy culture and the beauty and cultural excess of Christmas pulls us relentlessly forward, I invite us to pause and dwell again in the idea of gratitude. The practice of gratitude can nourish us so that we can work on creating that hopeful future and thriving in Christ's realm here, now, and offering it outwardly. That gratitude comes so easily when we are gathered around a table that is laden with delicious food and all the people, the faces of the people we love best are gathered around us. Perhaps we can take that feeling of fullness and engage in a routine to focus our attention every day on the richness of life and also our interdependence. Not just abundance for me that I can use, but all of the abundance that is around us that we belong to. Like the great Haudenosaunee whose Thanksgiving address we heard last week, we can borrow this pattern of turning our attention daily and naming and describing gifts that are for everyone to acknowledge that we are all recipients of the sun and moon and water, of plants and fish and wind. We can practice seeing ourselves as equally beneficiaries of all of these gifts, as humans together on the earth. It's a very simple, elemental practice that goes underneath all of our other belongings, our belonging to this family and this community and this nation. Beneath all of that, we belong to the great community of God's creation. And that community is one of abundance. When we dwell there, when we see another human hungry or naked or in prison, we won't look at them with pity. We will feel it as a tear in the fabric that makes up our own life, too. Gratitude cannot be the antidote to all suffering. It's not an invitation to merely look on the bright side, although that can help in small circumstances, not a wrong thing to do, but this gratitude is something deeper than that. The gratitude that roots us in Christ's kingdom of abundance goes to the ground that is beneath us. Gratitude can remind us that we have ground to stand on to endure suffering and be resilient through suffering, ground to stand on when another is suffering and we would reach them with our common humanity. Gratitude can remind us of the web of relationship that we can call on to lighten human suffering. In our current capitalist culture, which will be clamoring at us for the next month, especially loudly, threatened as we are by would-be fascists, being grounded in gratitude, this kind of gratitude for the abundance beneath us, is a revolutionary act, reminding us we, that we do not live in scarcity, that scarcity is caused by some hoarding abundance. When some people hoard abundance, it creates the illusion of scarcity and drives us all into fear and greed and guarding our own. 
going down beneath all of that to gratitude for the abundance beneath everything can help sustain us through those loud, clamoring voices of more, more, more. In an individualist culture, being grounded in gratitude is revolutionary. It reminds us of our interdependence and trains us to see the gifts that surround us and the people who have fallen or been pushed out of the web of abundance into hunger, thirst, and abandonment. We see them as ours, and we want to go get them because they belong to us. Gratitude is that revolutionary act that, that can equip us to love indiscriminately in the blessing of God's realm. It can help us live in apocalyptic times with joy and confidence and resilience and hope for our future together. Amen. Listen, listen, listen.